The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WNKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WNKV. And now your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Bina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, or this week is every week. We're putting folks just like you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. And today we have a show that you absolutely need to listen to if you are borrowing private money, lending private money, or are contemplating doing either of the above because my guess is you're going to learn some things today that you didn't know that you might actually be doing wrong in your private lending and borrowing practices. The Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati is sponsoring a two-day commercial academy with Peter Conti, my guest here on Real Life Real Estate about a month ago. It's April 18th and 19th, and it's about how to buy apartment buildings and commercial properties. You can get more information on that by going to CincinnatiRia.com. While you're there, check out next week's meeting, which includes a beginner's meeting on how to wholesale and retail properties, as well as uh, my guest today, who's going to be expanding on what he's going to be discussing today on the radio. So uh, if you're in the Cincinnati area and you like what you hear, you can get more information about that meeting at CincinnatiRIA.com or at 859-292-RIA. My guest today is attorney James Flax, a graduate of the University of Cincinnati's Law School and a practicing attorney who more or less limits his uh, his uh, legal practice to working with real estate investors. We're going to talk today about private lending and private borrowing, a very hot topic in the market today when there's a lot of people with a lot of cash sitting around wanting to put it into real estate without the management, repairs, etc., and when banks are more hesitant than they have ever been to actually give us loans on real estate. Uh, James, welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Thank you, Vina. Or perhaps I should say welcome again to Real Life Real Estate Investing because you have been a uh, fairly um, frequent guest here talking about everything from asset protection to the you know contracts to now this, which has become a major concern of yours over the last few months. This has definitely uh, been something that's come to my attention in a number of different ways, some of them kind of unpleasant. Obviously, real estate investing in today's world involves some use of private funds, whether it's seller financing or what we're really here to talk about today, directly borrowing from someone, some individual, to invest in real estate. And there are a number of things that people are doing wrong. Uh, to start with, there is a term used in securities law that does not mean exactly what it sounds like it means. These are exempt transactions, which means they do not have to be registered as securities with either the state or the federal securities and exchange commissions. It does not mean that there are no regulations governing this. There are regulations governing this. To start with, 
no matter where you fall on the spectrum, even if you don't have to even contact the SEC, you can't lie and misrepresent what's going on. A lot of people think you can spin this, like you spin something when you're talking to a seller or you're negotiating with a buyer or what have you. This isn't that sort of thing. You are taking someone's money under your control and managing it for them. You have their money. You have the deal. They no longer have control over the money. And that's a sensitive area, particularly in today's world. You're liable to find yourself very unhappy if you misrepresent what's going on. Now, we should probably say to listeners at this point that although you have had a lot of dealings with both private lenders and private borrowers and putting the paperwork for the deals together and doing research and so on, that you are not, in fact, a a securities attorney and that much of what we're going to be saying here this evening is going to have to be researched further depending on what state our listeners might be listening from because uh, we're not going to directly address any state laws, and they do vary widely. In, in, in some states, you, you, for instance, literally cannot borrow from someone who doesn't live in your state. Other states are looser about that. Some some have no requirements until you get to X number of loans. Some, like Ohio, have requirements from loan one. So uh, just sort of a we're, we're putting it out there as a, a, a best practices and a things to look for show as opposed to go, go to your state and fill out form number 95F and you'll be fine. There are a lot of forms. To even determine which form you need to be filling out, you need to talk to somebody who probably knows a lot more about this than I do. I I really am a real estate lawyer, not a securities lawyer, as you said, and my knowledge of this is limited to a lot of research I've been doing lately because things have been coming to my attention. Now, that said, there are some things that I've seen happen that I absolutely, as a real estate attorney, know are not correct. Um, One thing that has been brought to my attention that's been happening People have been, how shall we put this, facilitating private loans. People who are not the borrower, not the the lender. Possibly there's someone who's selling a deal to the borrower. Possibly they're just someone who knows them from uh, some association or something. But there are people who are offering to help you put together the paperwork on these things. Sometimes for a fee. If you are going to have a person put together the paperwork on something like this, that person should be a lawyer. It is, in fact, illegal for the person to be doing this if they are not a lawyer or some other type of professional licensed to do this, mortgage broker, banker, what have you. Now, one would think that since, since from the lender's point of view, some, some of these investments are fairly large. I mean, you know, here in Ohio, uh, we see transactions of, you know, 20 to, to, well, on an apartment building up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, out in California, it might start at hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this is an individual person lending money to a real estate investor for the purpose of purchasing and perhaps fixing a property. One would think that with this level of investment, that the lender would want an attorney sitting at that table making sure that all of the I's are dotted and all of the T's are crossed 
And yet, as you said, we've seen situations where third parties who just happen to know two people are charging money to put together documents, and then the documents turn out to be disastrous, illegal, uh, ineffective, humorous, uh, humorous in some cases. So, uh, yeah. So a piece of advice number one is always have an attorney involved in this deal, uh, whether you are the lender or the borrower. And there's there's a second problem, of course, with uh, people putting lenders and borrowers together and taking any sort of fee for it. And that is in many states, unless you have some sort of a mortgage broker's license, that's flat out illegal. Yes. I mean, like I said at the beginning, this, let me be more clear. If you are getting paid to fill out paperwork, you are acting as an attorney. If you are just getting paid for putting the loan together, you are acting as a mortgage broker. Both of those professions are licensed in the state of Ohio and in most other states. It is a crime to practice either of those professions without having that license. That that law, whether you may agree with it or disagree with it, is there to protect the public from bad advice. If I give you bad advice, you can go to the state Supreme Court. They will sanction me. There are funds to actually reimburse you. If somebody who you met on the street does the same thing, which they're more likely to do, you have no recourse. Very true. So licensed attorneys, that would be a piece of advice number one here on Real Life Real Estate Investing regarding private lending and borrowing. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the dangerous and risky practices that lenders and borrowers are engaging in that you've probably never even thought of. You can send us an email by going to askvena.com at any time, and we'll be happy to answer your questions. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and talking today to attorney James Flax about private lending and private borrowing. We're also taking your questions at 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area or 877-772-9658 anywhere in the United States. Or you can send us an email by going to askvina.com. Been getting a lot of questions on our Facebook fan page at realliferealestateradio.com regarding the podcasts and uh, saying that they were only there through December. That is not actually accurate. If you go to iTunes, like everyone is trying to do, uh, and don't pick the first one under careers, go down and pick the fifth one, which says business, and you will find that the shows are there at least through uh, like early March, mid, mid late February, early March, something like that. And we're getting the rest of the shows up. It's just that we had the one account and that one ended in December. And now we've got the other account that's got like a hundred shows on it, uh, including the most recent ones. So if you uh, can't find us, that's how you do it. Look under careers, not business on iTunes. Uh, and of course, go to realliferealestateradio.com and become a fan of Real Life Real Estate and you'll find out all sorts of interesting things about the show. There's pictures of my feet there, for instance. There's um, audios of or uh, videos of some of our programs. There's information about how to download programs at no charge. And also information about how you can still sign up for Real Estate 101 through wmkvfm.org. We actually have a couple of seats left for that. 
It's a great two-day beginner seminar made for folks who've never done a deal and who want to learn in one short weekend how to do that. WMKV.org. You can go there and get all the information and the schedule. Or you can go to... Uh, let's see, Real Life Real Estate Radio at Facebook.com. Now, going back to our topic, which is private lending, private borrowing, and what you're probably doing wrong. Again, we're not really going to address any specific state laws, although I can tell you that most of the uh, real estate investors that I know that are borrowing private money are not in compliance with those state laws because they don't even know what they are. But even beyond that, uh, there are just some, some common practices in private borrowing that are very problematic. Uh, the first one of, of which that really, really is, is has gotten some people in trouble is this idea of taking out repair costs in cash. Well, I would actually start with the first one being lenders who don't even look at the property, who do no due diligence. I get calls from lenders uh, all the time. I'm about to take this house back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, As the details come out, I realize that they have loaned more than the value of that property. Uh, But that's certainly made much worse by loaning out repair money without doing any sort of of uh, due diligence to make sure the repairs are being done. When a bank loans an investor money to purchase a property and to rehab the money, the property, the money to purchase it is released at the closing. The money to rehab it is not. It is held in either a dual signature account or it is held in an escrow to be released in draws as certain portions of the work are finished or something to that effect. It is not just handed to someone in the as a cashier's check as they leave the title company. And the reason for that is that, pretty obvious, people do stupid things with their money sometimes. People get home, now they've got $30,000. Well, they've got $30,000 and they've got a $3,000 income tax refund coming in a couple months. So why not take the vacation now that they were going to take with the income tax refund and just replace it with the $3,000 refund? The problem is human nature is that you're going to then spend that $3,000 several times before it comes, and it may not come at all. And now all of a sudden, you as the lender have loaned, say, $90,000, $60,000 to buy it, $30,000 to fix it, on a property that's worth $150,000, you think. Fixed. Fixed. But the property's not fixed because the $30,000 that was going to fix it has been frittered away. So you get the property back. And it's still in the condition where it sold to an investor for $60,000. Now, that may have been a good deal for the investor at $60,000. It's not nearly as good of a deal for the lender when they've paid $90,000 and have had to either foreclose or go through some process to get the property back. Property's probably worth less at this point. And there there are ways, of course, to... to overcome these things with some fairly simple due diligence. Now, I've I've had lenders or, or talked to lenders who have been in the situation where they loan someone money to, to fix up a property, whether it was part of the original mortgage or whether it was a repair, what we call a repair second. They simply wrote a check, 
sent it to the borrower and assumed that because the borrower was an experienced investor and had talked a good game, that that money was, in fact, going to go into some repairs on the property and has, in fact, taken back a property worth less than what they had in it because the repairs were not completed. So, okay, some some, some very basic things. If you can't look at the property, get an appraisal like from a third party appraiser who's actually been inside of it those are those are those are fairly reliable especially today when appraisers are being relatively conservative about the values of the property make sure that you've got a statement of work that says this is what is going to be done to this currently ugly house and don't hand a check for 10 or 20 or 50,000 dollars over prior to the time that the repairs are finished. The the correct way that, and, and this is, okay, borrowers, I know this is a pain in the butt, and you're not going to like me saying this over the air to, to millions of listeners, all right? But the money needs to be put in a separate checking account that you, the borrower, must get the signature of the lender in order to withdraw the money. And just like it used to be with these bank loans that, that were for repairs, it needs to be drawn in thirds or quarters. So when you get $5,000 worth of work done, you get $5,000. When you get the next 5000 you get $5,000. That's the only way the lender know that, knows that his security is being improved and not that the money is being spent. Because there have been uh, there's been at least one local case that, that pretty much every Cincinnati REA member is familiar with where a single guy, one guy, uh, borrowed over $100,000 in repair seconds and spent every dime of it without ever doing a repair on the property. And, you know, that's not good for any of us. And, yeah, I know, borrowers, you trust yourself to not do that, but do you trust your colleagues not to do it? We all need to be doing this. Well, and... We're, we're kind of focusing on what would be criminal fraud, you know, people who take the money and spend it themselves. But there are innocent ways to this can happen. You put the money in your business checking account and the property tax bills come due, which usually is a, you know, that's usually a rough month for small investment companies. It's a month where the accounts all bottom out a little bit. Well, they bottom out a little too far. There's a say. There's a downturn in the economy, and that house, those three rehabs you have on the market, don't sell. I, you know, I, I know that's an odd thought in today's market that you know somebody might possibly end up stuck holding a property for a few months. But lots of things can happen that will make a real estate investor cash poor. Now, what you as the lender don't want, you don't want your money going into that general fund. You want your money going straight into the property. Because the only real security you have on this is that property. The guarantee to repay, that's worth whatever the, the person who's made its net worth is. That's, that's not something you can count on if their business fails. You can count on the property, and what you need to be doing is making sure that at every stage of the deal, the amount of money you have out is less than the value of the property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, another uh, um, issue, and I mean, that, that, that one that we just covered is a really big one, and it's going to be a really big change in the way that investors interact with their private lenders if we can actually get anybody to say, yeah, that applies to everybody else, but not to me. Uh, and, and yes, folks, I am that I am doing that in my business. If you want to know, you know, I, I trust me just as much as you trust you, and I still have separate repair accounts for my private loans. So... 
Um, another another interesting issue that uh, we've we've heard some talk about recently is the idea of borrowing your profit out of a deal from a private lender. In other words, you've got a house that's worth hundred thousand fixed up. You're getting it for forty, needs twenty in work. You should borrow sixty. That, that 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 that's how much that's how much money you need to buy and fix the property. But we've got folks who say, well, but really, I, 70 cents on the dollar would be 70000 So it's still a safe loan for the borrower at 70000 So I'm going to borrow out 70000 40 to buy it, 20 to fix it, and 10 to go on vacation, eat, get a car, whatever. Well, as the lender, you are looking at these 60 cents on the dollar or 70 cents on the dollar, whatever your, your formula is going to be, um, percentages, not as profit margins you're looking at this as security again it is the absolutely not the case that you're going to get a hundred cents on the dollar at a retail sale even if you just go out and sell to a homeowner and sell the house for top dollar you're going to have expenses associated with that sale you're going to have a realtor's commission you're going to have advertising costs you're going to have time holding costs uh, where you're paying the utilities which pretty much have to be on if you want to try to sell the house to a homeowner, uh, you, you're going to have all sorts of little nickel and dime expenses. Those costs come off the top. So you're already talking, even in a perfect world, about less than 100% of the money coming back. Uh, when you're talking about a property that hasn't even been rehabbed yet, and they're, they're borrowing rehab money, and they're borrowing some profit out, that profit doesn't exist yet. Because the property right now, when the investor buys a property at 60000 that is later going to be worth 100000 the property at that moment is realistically worth 60000 If it wasn't, whoever sold it to the investor would have held out for more. So you have a property that at that moment is worth sixty. You're loaning them eighty or seventy, so that they can go on vacation. Now, there's another thing going on here, which is the psychology of it. Bankers used to, and small local banks still do, insist even on really, really good deals that the investor have some money in the thing. They call it having some skin in the deal. And the idea there is human nature is human nature. People are motivated by having some money at risk, and people are motivated by their desire to make the profit. If you've already gotten the profit, how motivated are you really on this deal? I mean, you've already gotten the profit. There's no longer reward out there for you. Now there's just, oh, I've got to go do the work. Well, you don't pay the contractor before he does the work for exactly the same reason that you don't loan the investor their profit. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today about mistakes you're probably making as a private lender or a private borrower. You can give us a call and argue, agree, tell your stories, do whatever you like at 772-9658-877-772-9658 or via email at askmina at gmail.com. Hey kids, it's Mr. Drew. Until you go to realliferealestate.com, I'm going to sit here and continue to tease this kitten. That's right. That's right. The feather gets you. The feather gets you, but you don't get the feather. Oh. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is James Flax, attorney at law. 
taking us to the woodshed over what we're doing with our private lending practices. Private lending is like the greatest thing that ever happened to both people who have money that they want to put in real estate and don't want to own, fix up, manage, etc. And to people who do want to own, fix up, manage, etc. and have trained themselves to do so. However, it is no joke to be putting a whole bunch of your money into somebody else's property without knowing what the best practices really are. You can give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or you can send us an email by going to askvina.com and simply filling in the uh, question response form there. And we did get a question here from uh, Donald in Amherst, Massachusetts. He says, how would I find out how the Massachusetts SEC rules would apply to me trying to obtain private lending from the general public to purchase a rehab? I'm a licensed real estate broker. I also want to know for the federal SEC. Well, if you're talking about funding from the general public and you really mean the general public, you're talking about something like putting an ad in the newspaper, uh, you're going to want to consult a very good securities firm because I think you're probably into the realm of non-exempt transactions at that point uh, just because of the advertising. I I am, again, not a securities lawyer. Uh, So you're going to want to talk to someone who is before you begin this. But let me just tell you, there's some red flags in what you're what you're talking about that have gone up just from hearing it, and that is the term general public. Uh, generally speaking, these exempt transactions are people you kind of know already, people you're doing business with, relatives, friends. They are not people that you are going out and advertising to. Advertising raises a whole set of issues, and while you can certainly go look at your state SEC's website, which I'm sure it has, and find some of the answers to this. There's a guy out there nearby who makes his living knowing these things and filling in the paperwork you're going to have to fill in, and I would I would go pay him. It's not If the deal's not worth paying a lawyer, the deal's probably not worth doing. <laughs> go find that guy. You can send your questions. Uh, by going to askvina.com or you can give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. We're talking today about best practices and a lot of this is things that that, uh, folks aren't going to want to hear because the best practices for protecting your lender so that you don't get in trouble because if your lender gets in trouble, it's going to be you who pays for it ultimately. Uh, often complicate your deals. They require you to get appraisals if your lender lives, you know, 45 minutes away and doesn't want to drive down and see the property. It requires requires you to provide statements of work to show what's going to be done and then what has been done. Requires you to open up a separate bank account for two signatures for the repairs. Requires you to stop borrowing your profit out of your deals. Stop creating your own paperwork for private lending deals. All of these things, yes, are going to make your life a little bit more complex, but it's going to be well worth it for two reasons. Number one, it's going to make sure that you are doing things right. And number two, it's going to make sure that private lenders don't get a bad taste in their mouths about private borrowers because things are not going the way they should be going. There's another uh, interesting thing Uh, that's happening out there, James, that I I don't know if you actually have an opinion on this, but I'm seeing 
a lot of borrowers, particularly those who are pretty new to the business, that are offering out interest rates to private lenders that when you sit and do the math, when you say, okay, what's the, what's the principal interest taxes and insurance payment going to be on this? Or even just interest taxes and insurance, just if it's an interest-only loan, the the payment to the lender for what's sometimes a three- to five-year loan is higher than the rent that one can get from this property. And to, to me, you know, yeah, the, 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 lender, the lender might be saying, oh, I'm getting a great deal because I'm getting, you know, 12% interest, 15% interest. But to me, it's always risky to have your money in a deal that the borrower has to go to work every week to feed. Well, that's definitely true. I, I, I see this... I see this in a lot of different forms. I've seen loans structured with uh, lump sum, simple interest payments that were just ridiculous. Uh, there have been loans with uh, standard interest rates that are insane. And you you, you mentioned 13 15%. Bank interest rates on real estate right now are, are what? Four. Four, <laughs> four, four and, and a half. half. Uh, investor borrowers, assuming they're were some banks that were still lending to them, seven, seven and a quarter. Uh, hard money lenders, you're getting into the, the realm that these loans are in. But hard, but hard money, money lenders don't make loans for three to five years, and there's a reason for that. Yeah, hard money <laughs> lenders loan the money out for six to 18 months max. Uh, this is this is not – and hard money lenders also have a staff of lawyers <laughs> doing foreclosures for them because they take back a significant number of the properties they're working on this with. Most of the lenders I deal with, most of the private lenders, hate the thought of taking the property back. Now, you've just upped the odds of you doing that by taking a 15% interest rate. Now, I'm not going to tell you, if somebody comes to you and says, I want to borrow $10,000 for three weeks, that charging them $1,500 isn't worth it. I mean, certainly, if you got to pull the money out of an account, it may cost you that much to do it. And people expect to pay a higher rate for smaller amount, short-term loans. But if you're loaning somebody $100,000 to buy a piece of real estate and fix it and hold it for three years, and they're offering you 15%, uh, why are they offering that? That's a question I'd want to ask. Yes, because it, uh, I, I have not seen a property even bought at 60 cents on the dollar that would cash flow at that sort of interest rate. And even even at, you know when you get into the 11 12% range, it's very problematic because uh, lenders, cash flow does not equal rent minus principal interest tax and insurance. <laughs> Cash flow equals rent minus 20% of rent minus sometimes another 10% for management, then minus principal interest taxes and insurance. And if that number comes up short every month, you got to ask, where is it coming from? It's better uh, to have a, a safe loan at 8% that, that on a property that the, the income is going to cover that loan than it is to really go for it at, at you know, 12, 15% hard money rates and and expect that that's going to be sustainable over the long term. And I think, you know, another question that lenders have to ask themselves is if if experienced investors are borrowing at eight, why is somebody borrowing at 12? Yes. Um, on the flip side of that, I have seen a couple of deals, uh, If and this is directed to the lenders because the borrowers who are doing what I'm talk about to talk about know they're doing something wrong. Um, I have seen deals structured where the borrower has offered the lender a percentage of the profits in lieu of interest. Now, that's a wonderful deal if you are a participant in the deal and you have 
access to the books and can look things over and know what's going on. That's a terrible deal if you thought you were just a lender and you're not involved in anything at all and you're not looking books over because you don't know what expenses there are. And real estate investors often have multiple rehabs going on at once. One Home Depot receipt looks exactly like another. One receipt from a plumber looks like another. They probably don't say which property the work went into. And I have seen a deal, I'm not going to get into any more specifics because of confidentiality issues, in which a person was fleeced out of probably $15,000 that they were due in in their share of the profits on the deal because they were phony receipts, doctored up and attributed to that deal. Let's go ahead and go to the phones and talk to Bob, who's calling us from Seattle. Bob, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. Hi, GM. How you doing? Great. Hi. Um, I'm doing private lending out here in the Seattle area. And um, one uh, strategy that has been suggested to me that I'm actually practicing is, uh, and this is in, in, in respect to uh, remaining in an exempt status by having a pre-existing relationship with lenders, uh, one strategy is to um, create seminars that teach individuals about private lending. There's no mention of any deals. There's no mention of any loans to me or anything. I basically educate them on how to be a private lender, um, and then through those relationships of the of the students or the attendees of the seminar, uh, I stay I establish a pre-existing relationship, and that may lead to a a private loan. What uh, What do you guys think about that? That may be that may very well be okay, Bob, but you need to check with a Washington State securities attorney. Oh, I have already. Yeah. Well, if he okayed it, then it's okay. By golly, because okay. I mean the, 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 the difference between what you're talking about and what James was no knowing a minute ago is I've actually seen ads in in the Cincinnati paper that said um, uh, loan backed by real estate, eight to ten percent interest, and a phone number. And that, right. that little classified ad is completely illegal unless you have a level of what really like a, almost a securities license in the state of Ohio. It's a little bit different from, you know, sending out a postcard saying, hey, we're meeting at this restaurant on Monday and I'm going to teach you what a private loan is because you're not directly um, soliciting the money through advertising if you're and, exactly. and and everyone who's listening in every state needs to do what you did and check with a securities yeah. attorney and make sure that that's not crossing a line Absolutely. yeah and, and and also one suggestion is to go to the state's website in washington we have a really good website that explains all the securities laws from the state's perspective and it's a real it's it's been a real help I, I would agree that's a good place to start i would say this is not an area for do-it-yourself uh Securities laws, uh, we're, we're using the word law kind of loosely. The securities law, the statute, is usually kind of vague and talks about things like solicitation and uh, secure transactions and uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of fairly vague language that the courts then sort of fill in to some extent, but most of the filling in gets done by the regulatory agency. And the state regulatory agencies, as the federal regulatory agencies, they look at things differently than you or I might. Uh, it is tempting to look at these things and say, well, there's no law against it. Well, they tend to look at it and say, well, yeah, but it's clearly not what the legislature intended to allow. So mm -hmm. your, your seminar 
thing in particular is something you're going to want to get a lawyer's opinion on who knows what the uh, the local SEC, your state's SEC or Securities and Exchange Commission, whatever your regulatory body is in your state, believes constitutes a direct solicitation because there are certainly jurisdictions in which they're going to say, look, you, you invited these people in, you taught them some stuff about securities, and then you passed out a sheet saying sign up here to loan me money. That was an attempt to solicit. There are other states that are going to say, no, this is not, you know, what have you. And apparently Washington is one of those, according to your your guy. Uh, but again, talk to a, an attorney who knows what they're doing in that state, just, just to make sure. Yeah. This is something you can get in a lot okay. of trouble for. All right. Thank okay. you very much for your call, you. Bob. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking about do's and don'ts in private lending and borrowing. You can give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. We're back on Real Life Real Estate Investing. Remember, you can become a fan of Real Life Real Estate by going to realliferealestateradio.com and uh, get all kinds of cool things, special reports, videos, just neat stuff that you don't get if you're not a fan. So that's Real Life Real Estate Investing Radio. Sorry, Real Life. Is that right? Real Life Real Estate Investing Radio.com. Yes. And you can call us with your questions today about private lending and private borrowing at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. I got an email from Paul in Cincinnati that says, uh, since since many lenders lend from their self-directed IRAs, how does a lender make periodic disbursements from his self-directed IRA for rehab loans? It seems these things are usually geared to one-time disbursements. Well, they can be geared to one-time disbursements, and I understand there's going to be fees involved in getting multiple checks out of the IRA, and it can be a slow and tedious process. Fortunately, there are attorneys, there are title companies, there are, well, I, I think we'll probably limit it to attorneys and title companies <laughs> for this. I, I'm not sure that any bank trust department is going to hold the money in escrow. You, you can create an escrow uh, where the money is to be released only upon their request and your approval as the lender and the fee for this i is it's not going to be huge i'm not going to get into you know the specifics or what have you we're on public radio but um you're not going to you're not going to end up paying a huge amount your borrower is going to be the one who's responsible for making the payment anyway and it's worth it to protect your money Mm-hmm. So you just do a one-time disbursement just into an escrow account. Into an escrow account with instructions to release the money in thirds or quarters or whatever you've worked out with your borrower. You can be flexible. I, I, there's, I don't want to give the impression here that this is all rigid and has to be done the same way a bank does it. It doesn't. That's one of the beauties of this. You can be very flexible and creative in your terms and in your uh, your way way you handle the loans. You just need to do the basic due diligence and you need to do the basic legal procedures to make the the thing work. And it's it's fairly common for instance in in these situations for the lender to release a few thousand dollars to start the job because you know you got to go get 
siding is before your workers can start. You know, so it's not something that's going to be fairly expensive. You know, the window company wants a few thousand dollar deposit before they start making your windows for you. Oh, sure. And uh, we're not saying like, you know, don't release the money until the work is done. Don't release the money. Don't release all of the money until the work is done. Don't release more money than you'd be willing to walk away from <laughs> before the work is done is really the point here. Uh, we got a couple more minutes where we can take questions at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or at uh, askvina at gmail.com. You can send us an email if you have one of those smartphones that'll you know, send it, but don't, don't text while you're driving. That's, you know, that's just dangerous. Don't do that. Pull over and then text. Um, okay, James, one other, one other thing that we need to talk about, and this is something that uh, I actually taught years ago as a way to allow possibly a private borrower to avoid a foreclosure in case of non-payment, uh, sorry, allow the lender to avoid a foreclosure in the case of non-payment by the borrower. And it became clear after a year or so that this was not something as workable as something else. And so, you know, I've been telling people for the last several years to, uh, to do it the other way. However, there's a lot of folks who are not caught up on it. And that is this idea that at the closing, lender gives the borrower money, borrower gives the lender a quit claim deed to take the property. Well, it doesn't give it to the lender, gives it to the, <laughs> puts it in escrow. Oh, in some deals they give it to the lender. In, in some deals they give it to the lender because people just don't think this through. Yes. Um, where uh, A quit claim deed that theoretically then if the borrower doesn't pay, the lender goes and records it and owns the house. Well, this is something, the legality of which depends on how you're looking at it. It's one of those kind of odd things. If at the time when you're trying to take the house back as the borrower, I mean, sorry, trying to take the house back as the lender, the borrower says, look, just take it. I give up. I can't do it. You're fine. There's no problem with this at all. It's a deed in lieu of foreclosure. If, however, the borrower says, no, I... I can make this thing work. I just need a little more time and starts fighting with you about this. You can't do it. You can't record the quick claim because he's going to walk into a court and say, your honor, they're, they're trying to do a non-judicial foreclosure. Um, and Ohio doesn't allow non-judicial foreclosures. Now, okay, let me step back for a moment. What we're talking about here is very specific to Ohio. There are states that allow non-judicial foreclosures and you're fine doing exactly what we're talking about. What escrowing the quick claim deed? Uh, Ohio does not recognize non-judicial foreclosures. Now that doesn't mean that anyone's going to go to prison for holding a quick claim deed. What that means is, if someone objects, and by someone I mean the borrower or the borrower's estate, if the borrower has died, or the receiver, the trustee in the bankruptcy court, if the borrower has gone into bankruptcy, objects to this quick claim deed being filed. You're not going to be able to file it. You're going to have to go through the whole foreclosure process. That can be very expensive. It can certainly be a very daunting experience for you who said, well, I don't have time to invest in real estate, so I'm going to loan this person money to invest in real estate and get a nice passive return. Well, now all of a sudden, instead of a passive return, you're in court all the time. You're hiring a lawyer and paying them a lot of money to get through the foreclosure. And you're spending months doing this. And then at the end of the process, now you've got a property that sat there on the market for, what, six months, nine months, a year. 
getting vandalized, getting the copper stolen out of it, getting what have you done to it. And you're not in nearly as good a position as you thought you were going to be. There are ways to protect yourself. There are, there are several of them. Most of them involve in some way, uh, shall we say sharing title on the property. You as the lender have some title rights to the property. And whether you do that with, uh, trusts or LLCs, corporations, or I guess you could theoretically do it with a joint tenancy deed, but I wouldn't think that would be a very wise way to go. Uh, you can, you can protect yourself and you're going to want to, um, you always, as the lender, have to figure out what it's going to cost you to get the property back, add that into the value of the property, and make sure that the deal is a good deal after you figured those things in. If it's still a good deal at that point, make the loan, even if you're going to have to foreclose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a comment from uh, John in Springboro, Ohio. It says, hey, Vina and James, important to remind we are talking about much more serious criminal violations when violating securities laws. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, that, I agree with that entirely. The, the securities laws are set up to protect the public from fraud. And you violate even the technical ones at your peril. The people who are enforcing these are going to come looking at you and they're going to come looking at you as a criminal if you have not done the the required filings and the required uh, disclosures. Now, for those of you who may be in a situation where you're uh, you're not in compliance right now, it good news. In at least in Ohio, there are ways to get into compliance if you are not. There are forms with not even particularly horrendous uh, penalty fees that you can file to report previous transactions that probably should have been reported in advance. Uh, again, contact the securities lawyer about getting that stuff done. There's plenty of them around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's try and review here. From the beginning, disclose. <laughs> don't 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 try and play games with the numbers. Don't don't say yeah this property's worth one hundred and fifteen, and therefore an eighty thousand dollar loan is really safe when it is in fact only worth a hundred. If you don't know how much it's worth, you probably shouldn't be borrowing private money. If you're not positive, you be buying it in the first place. <laughs> probably not. If you're not positive how much it's worth, an appraiser would be happy to, for about three to four hundred dollars, come out and uh, make both you and your lender secure in this. Other disclosures are also necessary uh, that that uh, I'm sure you're going to be covering at the RIA meeting next week. Um, there's there's actually a, a fairly lengthy set of things that that you need to put in writing to a lender that say things like, "All transactions are risky. The risks in this deal might lie in the following areas." Uh, uh, things that things that if if you were borrowing money from bank, the bank would be disclosing to you. Uh, if you were borrowing money from the bank, the the bank would be disclosing to you. It, that's what makes this kind of an odd thing. The the power relative power has shifted. When you're borrowing from the bank, you know all the disclosures are truth in lending sorts of disclosures, and they're coming to you, the borrower, because the bank is more powerful than you. When you're the business person who is uh, borrowing from a private lender, 
the disclosures go the other way. And that's kind of where the, you know, that's why there they're, they're are different entities that they govern bank transactions and these sort of transactions. And these sort of transactions, again, are governed by the securities commissions, whose job it is to make sure that business people have nice, safe markets in which they can raise capital to do business. That's the whole idea here. It's not just we're going to protect the public from the evil business people. The idea is to make sure that the markets stay clean so that the business people who are out trying to do real business can raise money. Mm-hmm. Okay, so don't lie, disclose, uh, don't borrow huge chunks of cash without putting them someplace safe until they are uh, used for their intended purpose of repairs. Uh, don't borrow cash out of, de- don't borrow profit out of deals. Get an attorney to tell you before you, to tell you uh, what's allowed before you start advertising or trying to raise private money. Get an attorney to create the documents that actually secure the deal. Close it at a title company. Banks don't allow kitchen table closings. You as the private lender should not either. Don't try to charge money for putting borrowers together with uh, lenders unless you have the appropriate licensing or it is allowed in your state. For heaven's sakes, don't pay someone who's not an attorney to put together deals for you in the sense of writing up the paperwork and, uh, you know, basically keep keep your nose clean, do the right thing, and that will force the people around you to do the same because otherwise the lenders will all come to you because you're doing the right thing. And that's the goal here is to make sure that uh, we professionalize ourselves before the government decides to professionalize us for us. Don't miss the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati meeting next Thursday. It is uh, James again, and he's going to be talking about all of this good stuff, plus providing some disclosures and things of that nature for the attendees. More information at CincinnatiRIA.com or 859-292-RIA. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.